Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews once more, Hebrews chapter 7. The book of Hebrews is a Christ-centered sermon. Uh, The only valid sermon is a Christ-centered sermon. If a sermon lacks Christ, it is not Christian. If a sermon does not have Christ as its hero, it is mere moralism which cannot save. Hebrews is the quintessential Christian redemptive sermon. It's the model by which all sermons should be judged upon. It's all about Christ. In fact, the first four chapters build up Christ is superior to everything that has forecasted him. It's not that those things were bad. It's just that the prophets were inferior to Christ. Christ fulfills the prophets. The same with the angels who gave the message, the prophetic message. The law itself, Christ is superior to them. He actually created them. Uh, Jesus is superior in every way the first four, almost five chapters of Hebrews pronounces. Now, We get to a point in chapter 5 where he just begins, the author that is, this deep study of Christ. In fact, most of the book, if you take one theme the book speaks of, it's the priesthood or the intercession, the intercessory ministry of Christ, the mediator that we all need to have peace with God, to have access to God, to draw near to God. So he gets to this place where he compares Jesus to the priest, shows how he's superior, but then has to pause as he's just about to dive in to this character named Melchizedek, he is to stop, and for a chapter and a half, almost two chapters, the author has to really rebuke or admonish the listener for becoming so sluggish in their faith, for so becoming so lackluster, slow in their spiritual development, that he knows if he starts tackling this Melchizedek character, they're going to be lost. Now, there's a chance we could get lost when studying Melchizedek, but I would hope you'd look at this as an exciting passage in a way Unlike many passages, all of God's word is exciting, of course. But Hebrews 7 gives us really new revelation that is not shown anywhere else in the New Testament. And it gives us a picture to something that was extremely mysterious to the people of God before the time of Christ. You see, Melchizedek is a character that is named only twice in the Old Testament, just a few verses devoted to him. Yet he stands out there as this mystery that every person in the church before the time of Christ, that is the Jews had to wonder who this guy is. You know, they were prideful about their lineage, about their ethnicity, being Jewish. Yet this Melchizedek is shown to be superior to Abraham, their father. Not a Jew himself, yet he is given this place of superiority. Better than their priests. You might just be tempted to pass over that verse if you were Jewish maybe in those days. But Hebrews comes to tell us what the reason is for this Melchizedek. It's plumbing the depths of Christ, brothers and sisters. This is not superficial stuff. It's heavy. We're going to look at chapter 7 as a whole, because to do anything else, to cut it up into pieces, we would lose the flow that the author is uh, forming here through these verses. So hear God's holy word, Hebrews chapter 7. Speaking, of course, of this Melchizedek that was left off in verse five, in chapter 5, we begin with verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a high priest forever. 
See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the other hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Let's pray. Father, this is a sermon in itself about our Lord Jesus Christ and the type that went before him called Melchizedek. Lord, enlighten our minds, open our hearts to see who Christ is in a deeper way. Let us get off the superficial, off of the milk of the word, and dig deep, plumb the depths of our Savior, whom we will study forever and never come to the end of. We thank you for this promise, this hope, and how it gives us strength for today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the longest time, I really didn't understand what that thing was. My dad kept, kept it in the basement on a shelf for years. 
He told me several times that it made ice cream. I believed him, but I couldn't see how. It was a small wooden bucket that looked worn and faded. The wood was dry and cracked. Right next to it on the shelf was this old motor, and I'm talking one of the oldest, or one of the first motors they made for those old ice cream makers. For the longest time, I'd ask him, what is that? And he would constantly tell me, it's an ice cream maker. I believe what he said. I just could not see how it would function, how it would make ice cream. I liked ice cream and could not see how it come from that rickety old bucket with a little metal thing in the middle and a motor on top. How would that make ice cream? It was a mystery to me for the longest time, but being one who likes ice cream, really wanted to know how that would, in fact, do it. I kind of thought that he was just, just put me off or kid me about it. Well, years later, after it sat there for a long time, some old, long-lost relatives came into town, and my dad got out the ice cream maker. And for the first time, the mystery was revealed to me what this thing was, or how it actually worked. I, I knew what he said about it, but to actually see how it functioned was amazing. Now, if you've seen those, and today you buy them cheap at Walmart, and you can get them, and everyone does. It's not that cool anymore. But back then, it was. So this bucket, this old wooden bucket, gets, uh, he puts the ice, or he puts this metal thing in, and really, we Italians have lemon ice. We don't use ice cream. And so this lemon ice creamy mixture goes into it, puts it in, puts the motor on, starts cranking it. And I was amazed as a kid watching. Now I see how this thing makes ice cream. But I sure didn't want to sit around and wait for it. It's a couple hours before this thing would turn into ice cream. So I left and came back. I didn't know everything there was to know about it, but I knew that it did in fact do what my dad said it would do. And there was this kind of mystery closed for me. It went back on the shelf and sat there for a long time afterwards, but I constantly knew it from that point what it was. The mystery had been revealed. I'd always wondered, now I understood. It must be true for the one who grew up in the Old Testament church. It must have been true for them that there was a great mystery surrounding this silly named guy named Melchizedek. After all, he wasn't Jewish. Why is he given such a great place in the scriptures, one must have wondered in the church in those days. God hasn't given us any more revelation about him. It might have been even a bit frustrating to be such a key figure in the life of Abraham, their father, the spiritual father of us all, to not give any more exposition or revelation about who he is. What is his purpose? And that's the beauty of Hebrews. In chapter 4, 5, 6, and now 7, we get new revelation that's nowhere else in the New Testament, and yet it's profound in understanding how it is that Christ functions as our priest. We understand the priesthood based on the Levites. You all are probably familiar with what they did in the Old Testament. Basically, to represent the people, to pray, and to offer sacrifice. And we could see how Jesus fulfilled those roles, and we might just stay there, and that would be enough to understand that role as Christ as priest. But the author of Hebrews, by the wisdom of God and by divine inspiration, gives to us revelation that teaches us that Christ is not just superior, that is, he's a better Levitical priest. He comes from a different line of priests that's so far superior that it causes for us a knowledge that he continually, even now at the second, intercedes for us. He has no beginning and no end, and he will never stop being our priest. He will always intercede for us. He's not limited by a, by a, a term or by just his life because he lives forever. He has an indestructible life. He is always interceding for us, far superior to the priesthood that was known. What we learn about Melchizedek here is that Melchizedek serves as a type or a picture of Christ that God uses to teach us Christ's exercise of an uninterrupted priestly ministry of intercession. It assures us of his sticking with us until the day of salvation, complete salvation. Now, what do we know about Melchizedek before we come to this long passage in Hebrews 7? 
Do you know there are only two references in the scriptures to Melchizedek? One in the book of Genesis, a historical record where it just gives us a brief glimpse, a brief introduction to this man Melchizedek. Then a prophetic reference in the Psalms is used as well by David, applying the person of Melchizedek to the coming Messiah. Now look first at Genesis 14, and you'll see this introduction to Melchizedek, who becomes so central in understanding Christ's priesthood. Now the context for Genesis 14, 17 through 24, is that Abraham has just received his call in Genesis 12. He's still really named Abram, and he is he goes out to uh, move away and go to the land that the Lord is directing him to. And along the way, he has an amicable uh, separation with his nephew Lot. Lot decides to go live in the greater metropolitan area of Sodom. What a wonderful suburb that must be. At any rate, that's where he went, and he took his family there. Abram went on his way to the Oaks of Mamre near Hebron, and they parted ways, and shortly thereafter, Lot found himself in the middle of a tribal battle. In fact, he's taken captive. Word gets back to Abraham that his, his nephew has been taken captive. By God's power and provision and, uh, and uh, strength, Abraham takes 318 men back, overtake the rebels, rescues son Lot. Coming off of this great victory, Abraham runs into this man Melchizedek. And that's the text that I'm referring to in Genesis 14. Look at verses 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Shedlamar and the kings who were with them, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God, so he feeds Abraham bread and wine. And he blessed him, that's what a priest does, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So immediately Abram, without discussion, gives him a tithe. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. So we have in just really three verses, 18 through 20, an introduction to Melchizedek. He fed and blessed Abram, a priestly duty for sure, blessed him. That's part of what a priest does for sure. But it gets different. Keep in mind, this is some 500 years before the Levitical priesthood is inaugurated. And he's a priest of the Most High God. Mysterious figure for sure. There's another second reference to Melchizedek where we get progressed revelation, you might say, about his purpose. It's shadowy, and I'm not sure that the person originally reading Psalm 110 would be able to put this all together. We now, in light of Christ, can see the full revelation. But in Psalm 110, verse 4, a psalm that's all about Christ's dominion given to him by the Father, in verse 4, David writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of, the, of Melchizedek. So there's David in the midst of the priestly ministry going on, everyone knowing it's a temporary institution for the one who is a priest, says about Christ, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Levi or the Aaron, uh, the, uh, of Aaron, but after Melchizedek. So just these two references, all you'd have. And if you were a God-fearing believer before the time of Christ, would that not frustrate you a little? 
Not to know a little more. And there's some of those puzzles in Scripture. We don't know exactly who these characters are. We only know what's been revealed. But this one seems so crucial. For Father Abraham to be called inferior, or at least act inferior, I'd want to know why. He's not even a Jew, this Melchizedek. How does that figure in, God? So then we have Hebrews. Praise God for Hebrews in this light. All these other questions, by the way, will get answered in heaven, and I look forward to that. But God in his grace gives us more about Melchizedek so that we might understand Christ better. Why does Hebrews refer to Melchizedek? I would suggest to you three reasons. First, Hebrews refers to Melchizedek to show how Melchizedek was a different kind of priest than the Levites. A different kind. Not that the Levites were bad, it's just that they were incomplete. There was a planned obsolescence in their activity to show how Melchizedek was different. Remember, by the way, when Hebrews is written in the first century, the priesthood at that time, the Levitical priesthood, was not held in high esteem. It had been, become corrupted. In fact, the priesthood that still remained after the time of Christ was all the more corrupted. They were more into their Jewish nationalistic religion than they were about uh, teaching the truth of God, teaching his redemption. Even sacrifices were waning, we know from history. So they weren't really even doing their job well. And so for Christ to come and declare himself or to be declared as the great high priest, as the author does, uh, there would be further explanation needed that it's not one of the priests that you know. Yes, he prays for the people. Yes, he represents the people. Yes, he gives sacrifice, which is himself. But he's greater than the Levitical order. He's from the order of Melchizedek. Now Jewish ears are perking up. Melchizedek? What, what, are, they, what are you talking about Melchizedek for? And he goes on. Look at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Please note, Melchizedek is not only a priest, but also a king. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, a king and a priest. No Levitical priest had ever functioned as a king. Now Samuel was a prophet and a priest, but he wasn't a king. This is a new office altogether. The Levites were never instituted to be kings. In fact, part of the reason why God used the lineage is to maintain that function in their life, that they would not seek after power as kings. Now, it became corrupted, and they influenced kings, but they weren't kings themselves. And here Melchizedek is a king and a priest. Verse 2, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Abraham willingly gives a tithe of everything. Abraham must have been told by God that the tithe was a standard offering. Later, the tithe is codified in the Mosaic Law, but it seems that it's natural for Abraham, as a profession and confession of faith, that he would just give that which should be held back for God, he would give that to God. This is natural. It's all from God, and God puts his mark on 10% of it, really as a test to us, a profession for us, an opportunity to say, we know it's all God's, and 10% of it's his. He does this naturally. He does this to a person who he doesn't seem to have a relationship with before, but he knows that he's a priest of the Most High God. Verse 2, the second part. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. His name, Melchizedek, means King of Righteousness. Then he is also King of Salem, which is that of peace, King of Peace. So two titles to this king priest, Melchizedek, King of Righteousness and then king of peace. And this name tells us a lot about his typological role. He's both king of righteousness and king of peace. This could not be said of any other priest. 
Okay, the Levites could not in themselves present any righteousness to God. They had to make sacrifice for themselves. But this, this priest is a king of righteousness. Typologically, Christ does not need to make a sacrifice before he then makes the ultimate sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He's the king of righteousness. King of peace, no Levite could bring you in a peaceful relationship with God. He did what he was told. He did what was symbolic. You could look to it in the same way they were, they were saved, the same way we are. By grace, through faith, in the Redeemer who had come, as pictured in the, in the sacrifices. But the priest couldn't give you peace. You could, confession to the priest didn't get you peace. But the King of Peace, Christ, who we directly go to confess our sins, for he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's Christ. He's a King of Peace. Righteousness and peace, this Melchizedek, brings to the table of the priestly duties. Different now, more uh, superior, greater than what they had known in the Levitical priesthood. Look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This has got to be the most difficult interpretive question in the text. What does it mean that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy? Who could that be? How could that be? I don't think it could be referring to a theophany or a, a pre-incarnate Christ because it says he resembles the Son of God, not that he is the Son of God. I think the way we ought to take this is that he is what he is, a type. And so to the knowledge of the people who knew Melchizedek, no one knew his lineage. They just didn't know it. And we say, well, that's not that unusual. We meet people all the time and there's new folks. We don't know your lineage. But see, that's different, though, for that culture. They identified you based on your lineage. In fact, some rural churches today, my wife grew up in a church where they all know their lineage. They'll talk, they'll talk across the board about who you're related to. If you go in uh, and ask for someone, they'll say, oh yeah, that's so-and-so's daughter, that's so-and-so's granddaughter, and they'll, and they'll bridge it out several generations because you're identified by your lineage. It's really a rich thing when you think about it. So to the Jew, when you were a priest, you knew what their lineage was, didn't you? They were a son of Levi along the line of Levi, and they could draw it back. Oh, his father was a priest in the temple way back when, and his grandfather was, I remember when his great-grandfather was a priest in the temple. I remember when his great-great-great-grandfather was a priest in the tabernacle. Oh, yeah, well, I, and you can see how it goes on. But now here's Melchizedek. No one knows anything about him. He's, no one knows his father or his mother. So symbolically, you have this man who represents the one who truly had no father or mother, Christ. No beginning and no end. Different than the Levites by far. Different by far. Resembling the Son of God continues a priest forever. Look then at verse 4 and following. It's this continued comparison of Melchizedek with what they knew as the priesthood. See how great in verse 4 this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. Abraham the patriarch. This is on purpose on the part of the author to really dig at those Jewish folks who are listening and reading and, and challenging themselves as to whether they're going to go back to their Judaism. He's saying, wait a minute. Abraham the patriarch, in essence, showed his inferiority to this person who wasn't even a Jew. And that's the order from which our Messiah comes. That's what he's building towards. Verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. In other words, there's a commandment they filed to go get the tithe. That is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham, among the brethren. But this man who does not have a, his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Abraham volunteered those tithes. It wasn't that the priest came to get them. He came and Abraham volunteered those as a, a profession of his faith in the Most High God. Verse 7, 
It is beyond dispute here that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. There's a lot here, a lot here. In particular, consider verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, that is the, the priest Levi, paid tithes through Abraham, who was many years before him, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor Melchizedek when he met him. You know, there are many things we can say about this, but one I'd like to point out is that this matter of giving, when you give, you're actually ultimately, no matter what the structure is, you're not giving to me or to the local church, you're giving to Christ. That's who you're giving to. So when you're not giving, you're not giving to Christ. And it's not just your monetary gifts. It's your life. It's your time. It's your talents. But if you're not giving, make no mistake, who you're not giving to is Christ. It's not me. Or it's not the church. It's not the, the movement of the gospel. It's Christ that you refuse to give to. It's crucial here. And furthermore, I, wouldn't, I don't think it's too far to say, when you read this text, hundreds of years between Abraham and Levi, and you've got this situation where verse 9 declares, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor Melchizedek. There's a sense in which the, when the fathers give, they give on behalf of those who will come after them. Not in that just that they set an example, but covenantally, God blesses families that way. And so I want to be a father that my children look back and say, he gave it all to Christ. Not he was cheap for Christ. He gave it all. That's what my father did. And what are the chances of my son being giving if I'm cheap with God? Just common sense will tell you what it is, but covenantally, the curses are brought upon the, the fourth and fifth generation as well. So don't think you're just sneaking around. God knows in the generations to follow, either are blessed or are cursed by our activity now. I just came back from Presbytery in Omaha, and there's several fathers of the faith that are part of this presbytery, and we've had various issues we've been dealing with, but one of the issues that has caused a discussion that I would share with you uh, has to do with aligning with the old church that we separated from. And young guys can sometimes forget how much it costs to separate from those churches. But those fathers don't forget because they gave them themselves. Same way we do a building fund now or a building campaign where we raise money to build buildings, which we hope are monuments to God's grace in the future, and more importantly, places where ministry happens. We have that heart for it. A relatively young congregation, you're giving now to help that process. Well, those fathers in the faith did the same thing. The difference is their denominations sold out on Christ and they lost their buildings. Now, the reason why I think that's a, a profound picture is that they gave because they wanted to see Christ's gospel advance and instead they lost their buildings with the denomination renounced Christ. They gave and did not see the fruit come from it. Now, thankfully, we have a whole different set of bylaws now. The congregation owns the building. It doesn't go to presbytery. But I thought of this generational thing where you give and then you hope that as you give, whether it be monetarily or with the gifts you have in serving Christ, uh, the time you have devoted to service for him, that it has a generational effect. I mean, one of the things that drives me, that just gets me up in the morning, is that we're doing something here, and we're part of a greater kingdom that will go on for eternity. Long after we're gone, Christ will be glorified based on things he's doing in us now. We think past our generation. That's true here. I see the dismay in the faces of the fathers in the faith when the generations were not faithful after them. 
but consider that how we are faithful now will have a great effect on what happens later. But to this point of Melchizedek, we have this tithe given to him by Abraham, and we also are reminded by Zechariah just briefly that Christ himself would fulfill this role of king-priest. Zechariah says in Zechariah 6, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall be, bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So God is crafting this picture of how he will fulfill his promise and oath to send a savior. This savior will be both king and priest. You know, this has got to blow away that person who's been studying all these years, this Jewish believer. And now all this is coming clear about, about Melchizedek. And I would just challenge each of us that we should not put God in our own little box. What I mean by that is, is let the scriptures say what they say and let's not add to them or craft something around it that's just our own uh, tradition or our own custom. Let's always challenge those things with the scriptures. In fact, as it's been said, and I say often, tradition itself, just for the sake of tradition, is, is traditionalism. And the difference is this. Tradition, in a good way, is the living faith of the dead. We keep those things as part of what's been passed to us as a heritage. But traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And it's the very thing that the Jews had become accustomed to. And looking at their Levitical priests, even as corrupt as they were, they missed seeing Christ, at least humanly speaking, because they had built up this human institution to the point where they lost the full range of what the Scripture said about Jesus, the Messiah. What a picture this is for us. But it does not stop there. Hebrews writes about Melchizedek so that we can understand how it is different from the order of the, the Levites but also to demonstrate the significance of Christ being a priest after that order. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? You know, why do we need this special priest from Melchizedek as opposed to just another one from Aaron? He's beginning now to make the Christ-centered or the Christ-connected bridge gap. Now is where Jesus fulfills this type we're speaking of. Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now don't get tripped up by this. Change in the law here is not referring to a change in the Ten Commandments. It's referring to, the, it's referring to a change in the ceremonial laws and regulations that surrounded the priesthood. Those things, the sacrifice and all the things the priest kept with regard to the temple went away with Christ, the one sacrifice. So necessarily, with a change in the priesthood from the order of Melchizedek to the order of Melchizedek, no longer does the order of Aaron need to be in place. The ceremonial law and regulations are gone. That component of the law has changed. It is now Christ. Verse 13, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the, at the altar, meaning never served as a priest. Where is that tribe? For it is evident, verse 14, that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So this priesthood is beyond your box. This priesthood is bigger and better than the priesthood you've come to know. It served its purpose, but now the priest that we look to has his linkage with Melchizedek. 
that mysterious, no beginning and no end character. That's the priest that we serve now and that serves us. Jesus was not from the tribe of Aaron or the Levites. A different kind of priest, a better priest, for it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah. Look at verse 15, because this is just on the heels of essentially saying to the Jews, get over your ethnicity. Get over your club membership. It's not about that. Messiah doesn't fit your exact box. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. God, in his infinite wisdom, gave us uh, an earthly priesthood for a time to point to something better. But the fact is they were limited by their life. They were limited by the fact that they would die. They could not continue on. They were legally required. The sons of Levi had to be priests in that sense. They were trained that way. Where is, where is God appoints Christ, appoints Christ based on his merit. No other priest is a priest because of their merit, because they have none. But Christ, based on his merit, his worthiness, is appointed priest. A different kind of priest altogether. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The old priesthood for all its positive contributions in maintaining the unfolding gospel message was now defunct and not worthy to go back to. If you go back to it, the author is implying, you're going back to something insufficient, something not intended to save, something lesser than what it is. This is important because I think at times people feel like it's easier to throw in the towel. Maybe you're not a former Jew going back to the Jewish system and the security that it brought, at least you thought it brought. Many have come to Christ and thought it was easier when they weren't a Christian. You have a moment where you think, why is it so hard for me now? It should be easier. Jesus says, my yoke is light. It was easier before. Why was it easier before? Because you were dead in sin and you didn't know how bad off you were. Yes, it's a conviction and a burden to carry to know how bad off you are. But that's where, the, where Christ, our priest, takes that burden from us is as we become clear in understanding how depraved we are, how much more sufficient Christ is. You don't want to go back. It's not better there. It's death there. They were tempted to go back. This picture of Christ as a different kind of priest was a divine attempt to call them back. Verse 18, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. It's useless now. Doing the old things doesn't make any sense when Christ has fulfilled it. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Please get that. This priest does not only help us to see the atonement for our sins, that is a forgiveness for our sins, but this priest helps us draw near to God. That's different. The Levites were very formal. They were very ritualistic. You brought your sacrifice. Your sins uh, symbolically were forgiven. But there was no personal touch. The priest didn't give you a hug. Okay, well, the priest that Jesus is is he makes us to draw near to his father. So it's likened unto a child who comes up to his or her parent and not only is acquitted of whatever thing they've done, but then grabbed by that parent and brought up into their lap and sit there to be, just to be cuddled. That wonderful picture of your child, not just saying, son, you're forgiven, but son, come here, come here, and hug him and hold him up on your lap. Draw near. That's the kind of priest Jesus is. We have our sins forgiven, 
Then he draws us near as adopted sons and daughters. That is the beautiful picture we have of Christ. For it is witnessed of him in verse 17. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What a beautiful picture. Drawing near. That's a different role now. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. In other words, what we learned from the text that we studied last time is that God made a promise and an oath. And it stems from the eternal promise and oath that the Trinity made. But this promise and oath is what appoints Christ to be the priest. Whereas the line of priests before came up because that's who they were. Uh, their daddy was a priest, so they were going to be a priest. It wasn't based on a special oath that God made and appointed. So this is another special component to Jesus' priesthood in the line of Melchizedek and not of that of Aaron. Finally, I would point out to you, as the text continues to, I think, crescendo into this ultimate picture of fulfillment, Hebrews speaks of Melchizedek in order to show that he had a different priesthood from what they were witnessing, also to demonstrate the significance of Christ being in this order. And finally, and ultimately, Hebrews refers to Melchizedek for the simple yet profound reason to assure you, believer, you, that Christ is a priest who would not, could not ever stop interceding for us. It needs to be clear. There are certain things God cannot do. The chief one is he cannot lie. He cannot lie against himself. What he has said is true and it will always be true. The scripture declares clearly he is truth himself and he does not change. Further, his promise to the son will never stop. The son's role as a priest will never stop. I have made you a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever means forever. It'll never stop. It's as sure as God is God that it will be. It's not like my promise to you or your promise to me. It, when he says it, it is. Or you might even say it was. It's that sure. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor, literally. Verse 21, but this one, Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That is the supreme guarantor. There is no underwriting that is better than Christ the guarantor. Nothing beats that security. And he does that as our priest. All this talk about Melchizedek is simply to start us thinking about the superiority of Jesus as our priest. Verse 23 the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They're going to die. There had to be a lot of them. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That important work the priests do is great, but it's temporary. It's bound to the mortal life of the one acting in this priestly role. Instead, dependence cannot be on that which ends, but dependence must be on the one who never ends and never stops interceding. Never get too caught up in the person who leads, the human person who leads. They were stuck on their priest to some degree. Christ is the only sufficient and worthy one to follow. Because Christ cannot die, he is always able to make intercession for us. And he does so continuously. Continuously. Look what it says in verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save them to the uttermost. Remember that what we are speaking of here is a comparison between the priests who were brothers with the rest of the Israelites. What we're speaking of with Jesus is one who's superior to us. It's not that he's, he's our elder brother, yes, 
but he's superior. In other words, uh, the priesthood and the Levites is much like it is for us. Uh, I'm not superior to you in essence. In fact, part of our liturgy, by the way, is meant to show that. We have a processional to show that the, the teachers of the word come out of the congregation and they recess back into the congregation. I'm not your priest. No one is a priest. I come back in your midst for that hour of worship set apart to preach, to lead in worship, but I, I'm with you. That's not the case with our great high priest in that sense. He does a work that no one else can do. In verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later in the, than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. There are few greater statements on the superiority of Jesus than these verses. Look at them closely. He's able to save to the uttermost. The Levitical priesthood is temporary, incomplete in every way. Christ, the great high eternal priest, is permanent now and complete. He's able to save to the uttermost completely, Totally, nothing can separate us. He will save us for eternity, the uttermost. He's not weak. He will always do it. Our citizenship will never change because it's dependent on him and not us. Those who draw near to God through him, draw near to God, are adopted. We have fellowship with God through Christ. We cannot come to God ourselves. None of us, not one of you, can go to God on your own. We come through him. You see where it says it in the text, that through him we come. We draw near to God, not by our works, but through him, that is Christ. We draw near. He always lives to make intercession for them. Please do not lose appreciation for what it means that Christ, while you sleep and have no thought of him, intercedes for you. While you willfully decide to sin, while you decide to set your mind on something evil, Christ intercedes for you, and he doesn't stop. He didn't say, oh, look what Tony's thinking. I'm going to stop interceding. He doesn't deserve it. No, he intercedes for me. And he intercedes for you even when you willingly defame him. That's the high priest we're talking about. Not like a human high priest. It could be upset with you and your family somehow. Who knows what they might do. Christ intercedes and never stops interceding. And we are told that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Please see that picture. The king is on his throne, and he puts one who is co-equal with him, only one who's co-equal with him, at the right, his right hand. Why? Well, the right hand symbolically holds the scepter and the sword, and anyone seated at the right hand could stop the scepter or the sword. He's co-equal. And so every time Tony's about to do something that rightfully deserves God's justice, the son leans over to the father and says, he's mine. He's mine. He intercedes for me. When you're ready to do that thing that you've thought about and still decide you're going to do it, that sin, the son leans over to the father and intercedes for you. That's the high priest we're talking about here. The superior high priest. He's holy, innocent, unstained. Think about the word unstained for a moment, especially parents. I don't know which pair of pants my boys have that don't have grass stains on the, the knees. They are still clean, though, after they're washed. But they have a stain on them reminding me that they skinned up their knee on the grass. But smell it, it's clean. 
It just won't come out. It reminds of something done. Jesus is unstained. It's not that he did something and was then completely made clean. He never did it. He's unstained, separated from sinners. Not that he does not eat with us or sup with us. Just that if you look at Jesus and you look at me, you will see the difference. You won't even have to, you want to talk and you'll know there's something different. He's separated from sinners and ultimately exalted. This is all in sharp contrast to what they held near and dear. The author goes after their false security by showing them how utterly deficient the system they were considering to return to, how utterly deficient it really was. Jesus is superior to all of it. Why, my brothers and sisters, would you ever want to go back to anything else? He's totally self-sufficient in his own. Christ is superior in every way to the human priesthood. Christ was appointed by God, by an oath, not just a command. Christ enacts eternal intercession for us, not limited by death. Christ has perfect character, untainted by sin, not even stained. Christ's one-time sacrifice of himself is sufficient for all times. Hebrews refers to, Mel to Melchizedek in order to show the glory of Christ. Hebrews outlines Melchizedek to show a different, superior priesthood to Aaron's. Hebrews outlines Melchizedek to show Christ is a superior priest in every way. Finally, Hebrews teaches about Melchizedek to assure us that Christ is, is a priest who would not, could not ever stop interceding for us. Trust him. Let us pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed by the superior, superiority of Jesus. He is greater than all we hold near and dear. And whatever we think we're holding on to, Lord, is utterly deficient compared to the magnificence of our Savior, our King Priest, the Lord Jesus. I pray that we would be a people who would be bowing at his feet, that in that stature you might use us to change this world for Christ, for his glory. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.